Glad that you're here. I was uh, also telling the first service, I feel like the, today's really a culmination of a great week we've had as a church, hopefully in your e-groups, encounter group, embrace group, engage group, whichever one that you're involved in. You've had a great time. We had a, a wonderful time at Celebrate Recovery on Thursday night. Heard a life-changing story. Friday night had a marriage event, and if you weren't able to be a part of that, uh, you need to make time for that if it ever becomes available again. It was enriching. It was a blessing. It was challenging um, to our marriages. There was about 70 or 80 people, I think, that were there. And uh, Alan Folkrod, one of our elders, Jason Tovey, uh, did teaching at the beginning of a Theological Foundation, why we're married, and did a great job. And so um, if you see that come available again, make sure you make time for that. That was a, a wonderful blessing. And we come together today and obviously um, carry each other's burdens and confess sin to one another and love each other and sing these songs and open the scriptures. So it's great to be part of this family. And uh, if you're a guest with us, I just welcome you. Um, welcome to one of our, our gatherings, and uh, we hope that you'll come back again sometime. We'd love to know how you heard about us, and if you wouldn't mind, if you'd fill out in your worship program a little card that's on there. If you fill that card out and take it out to the first-time guest kiosk, we make a donation to a ministry that actually rescues people out of human trafficking. So by just filling that simple card out today, you, you're blessing somebody else's life. And then we also have a gift for you, because we love you, uh, we love our world, we love those people that are out there, and uh, we want to make as much of a difference as we can. We've been doing this series uh, that we've called Movement, and we've been going through the book of Acts together, and if you want to go ahead and look in your Bibles early to get that spot, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today. Uh, but really what we've been talking about is the local church, and that's what the book of Acts is about, is how God's movement in this world is the local church. You've heard me say the statement, that's plan A, there's no plan B, that's you, and that's me. And so before God ever allowed us to try and mess it up and make it a, just a social group that he meets together, or a church just something we show up at, or a place where you make connections for your job, or any of that kind of stuff. It's always been intended that the local church would be God's movement to reach the world for Jesus, to put his son, Jesus Christ, on display for all to see that he'd be lifted up and men would be drawn unto him. And so that's been his desire, and that's what we've been talking about, and our desire and to be that kind of church, and our desire for every church in the triangle to be that type of church, that this place would be different as a result. And so we're going to open up the scriptures in just a moment. Let me uh, just go before the Lord and pray. If while I'm praying, you feel the need to confess sin, feel free to do that. Uh, if you feel the need to just praise the Lord for, you know, that he transformed your life and, and those types of things, I'm just going to pray that God speaks to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence and are, are grateful that we can do that, that you dwell on a throne of glory, but by your grace, you allow us to approach you. And I pray you would show us your glory this morning, God. Reveal yourself to us. Just open up our hearts, our minds, this theater. Do what you're going to do. Do whatever you want to do, but just show us who you are. Make us love you more. Draw us to you. Show us that you're the only one that satisfies God. Make us whole in you. I pray that you would please heal and remove sin and, and deal with stuff, God, whatever you need to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we start the message this morning, I just want to ask you to do a little survey, and I can see some of your hands, and so if you raise your hand up, I'll see it. How many of you here are what you would call fair people? Like, you like to go to the fair when the fair comes into town. It's, all right, man, we went redneck already today, okay? So just go ahead, pop your hand up there. All right, good. All right, how many of you, maybe you go there, you, you like the carnival games, you play those games, you ever see those games, you know, you throw the little dart at a balloon, and you didn't realize the balloons are all soaped up or whatever, the darts won't hit them, and... You know, toss the little ball into the bucket and the ball bounces out, ping pong ball or whatever it is. Or I was telling the first service, my, my least favorite game is the basketball games because they look so easy. They have like a six-foot basketball hoop with a mini ball and then you can't make it because the hoop is shaped like a triangle or something like when you, when you look in there. Uh, but they got all these games that they, they play. And I, and I remember one time, I was at an amusement park up in Ohio, Cedar Point. They had some amazing roller coasters and all that. You don't really go there for the carnival games. I was walking through the area where they had all those types of games, you know, shoot the little red chickie with the squirt gun or whatever it was and all that stuff. And uh, I decided I was going to play because I needed to win a prize because I was there with Shanna. We were dating at the time. And uh, I decided that I wanted to win that for her because I saw these other guys walking around with these amazing trophies for their girls. 
you know, pink monkeys, you know, and tie-dyed giraffes. Like, who doesn't need one of those at their house? Like, what a classy present. And so I wanted to win one of those things for her. And so I went over and I played the first game. I didn't win anything. I figured the game's got to be rigged. So I went to another game and played that game. I didn't win anything either. And finally she came up to me and she said, Scott, I don't really want one of those. So when I heard those words, were such an attack on my manhood, they translated to me at that moment, you're not capable, stop spending your money. So then I proceeded to uh, several other games after that was done. I didn't even win a beanie baby that day, okay? Much less a giant, you know, parrot or whatever that you'd walk around with. But I was pretty frustrated because I wanted something and it wasn't happening. And so I continued to go forward with trying to make that thing happen. Now, I wasn't as frustrated as a guy that I read about this week. His name is Henry Brigham Giggum, I think his name was. Uh, he lived up in New Hampshire and he went to a carnival. He spent his whole life savings on a carnival game. The game was called Tubs of Fun. You throw a ball into a tub, and the ball stays in there, you, you win. And he was trying to win an Xbox Connect. And he went in there, and he said he quickly dropped $300. He said he, when he was practicing, he'd throw the ball in, and everything went fine. But when he wasn't practicing, which I didn't even know they let you practice, right? <laughs> if I'd have known that, I could have at least, you know, whatever. The guy's practicing, he throws the ball in there, it works. He stops practicing and starts putting some money down. And he said it had to be rigged. Because all of a sudden, he couldn't get the ball in there. And then the guy kept going, well, we'll do double or nothing. You get your money back, you win a prize, double or nothing. And he said, real quickly, he lost $300. And that's all the money he brought with him to the carnival. So he went back home, got more money, the rest of his money, came back up there, and then quickly dropped $2,300 more from his entire life savings, $2,600. Did not win an Xbox Connect. However, did walk away with a consolation prize, a banana with dreadlocks. So, I mean, it's not a total loss, right? $2,600 for a banana? With dreadlocks. Yes, that's very techy. At any rate, <clears throat> I hope you've never spent $2,600 on carnival games in your whole life cumulatively. But if you've ever played one carnival game, you probably know how this could happen. Because you go in and you, you start to, it's so easy. It's just $2 and you could win an Xbox and then, and then double or nothing. No, they just got to get my money back. And then you just kind of keep going and you want this thing to happen, but it's not happening. And you've got this desire for something that you want but it's not working out, so you keep going for it. And the reality is that plays itself out in not just silly games with bananas and dreadlocks or Xboxes or any of that stuff, but with a lot of stuff in life that we want. Just think about what some of your desires are. In fact, think about your greatest desire in life. If you could just pick one, what would be your greatest desire in life? And it might be a career desire, it might be a relationship desire, it might have to do with health, it might have to do with someone else's life you desire something would happen. If you could ask God to do just one thing, and that's the tough part about this question, if you could ask God to do just one thing, what would you ask him? Maybe you'd ask him for a child. Maybe you'd ask him to do something in your marriage. Maybe you'd ask him for real peace in your life. Maybe you'd ask for somebody else's salvation. Maybe you'd ask for a healing of some sort. If you could ask God to do one thing, what would it be? And what if he says No. What if God decides to do something different than your desires? And that's what we're talking about today. When God does something different, different than what you desire, different than what you want, different than what you hoped would happen. You, you know how it is when you, you desire to have a baby and then you finally get pregnant and you miscarry. Isn't that how life goes a lot of times? You decided you're finally going to have a marriage that glorifies God. You're finally going to live that marriage the way that he wants it to go and then your spouse wants out. You decide you're going to go back to school and you're going to get a better job and then a recession hits. You decide you're going to surrender your life and follow Jesus and the wheels fall off. Isn't that oftentimes how things go? Not always like we want. 
And so what do you do when God does something different than what you want? That's what we're going to be talking about in Acts chapter 11 today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to join me in your copy. In Acts chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. And what's been happening up to this point is that we're about six, maybe seven years into this movement that's called the church, where God's putting Jesus on display through the people that will place their faith in Him and start gathering together and living out the one another's of scripture with each other. But so far, that group of people is primarily Jewish. It's almost all Jewish people, which brings its own cultural dynamic, which really essentially makes the Great Commission to preach the gospel to all nations impossible. And so what God's been doing in the last several chapters has been breaking down those social barriers. And we've seen God work through a vision, through his placement, through all kinds of different things. And what ends up happening last week is that God opens the door and the Gentiles start coming in. People's lives are transformed. They stop trusting in being good enough, stop trusting in going to church, stop trusting in all their works and all that stuff and shift their trust into Jesus Christ. And revival breaks out and Gentiles come into the church, but then there are believers, Christians, who don't like what God is doing and don't like the way that he's doing it. So what do you do when God does something different than you desire? Look at the text with me. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. They entrusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. In verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. What? That makes sense. God's at work. Verse 3, and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. And here in verse 5 through about verse 15, he shares the same stuff that we read back in chapter 10. Only now we get it from Peter's perspective. Now it's in first person. Look at what he says. He says, I was in the city of Joppa. Remember God moved in his life to bring him to Joppa, and he stayed with a tanner who had been unclean, and God was working in Peter's life. And in a trance I saw a vision. Remember God gave him this vision? I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to where I was. And I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds of the air. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter was a Jew. He wouldn't do that. And so he says his first response. I replied, surely not, Lord. You would never command me to do something like this. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I've never done anything like this. This is uncomfortable. Verse 9, the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. He wasn't just talking about food. He's talking about people. The good news came for all people. Male or female, Jew or Greek, slave and free, all people can receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. This happened three times, and when it was pulled up to heaven again, and then it was pulled up to heaven again, in verse 11, right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. He doesn't tell him the house that he was staying at here, which is interesting. In verse 12, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. And then these six brothers, other Jewish guys that he took with them, we talked about them last week. He brought the brothers from Joppa with him. Now we know there are six, seven witnesses, which would be far more than needed to verify a story. So then these six brothers from Joppa, they come with him, and he tells them that what ends up happening is that they go into this man's house, this Gentile's house, And he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your whole household will be saved. Remember last week we were just told, Peter, we want to hear the message you've been commanded to give us. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them. He didn't even get to finish his message. Just as he had come upon us at the beginning. 
And then I remember what the Lord had said, and he quotes the word, Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, so if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And when they heard this, the same people that we talked about back in verses 2 and 3, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto salvation. This is a huge verse for the church. This is a verse of the church saying essentially that most of us, those of us who are not Hebrew, that, that we believe that you too can become Christians, that you could become a Christian, that I can become a Christian as Gentiles who don't already become, don't first become Jewish before doing this, that you can actually come in because God is at work. And we see it here through God's word, through God's prophets, through God's prophecy, through God directing, through God's spirit, through God changing lives, through God at work. It's God, 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 all the way through the thing. Because remember, it's not about you. It's not about me. It wasn't about Peter. It wasn't about Cornelius. It's about God. And for weeks we've seen that God's the one that does the preparation. God's the one who moves people into place. God prepares us for salvation. God directs us directly in our lives. God is the one that's doing all this stuff. And so are they going to fight God? Because that's what we see happening here is that God's at work. God's doing this. God's doing these things. But what about when what God's doing isn't what you want him to do? Because that's what's happening here for these believers up in verses 2 and 3. And they're criticizing Peter. It's because it's not happening the way that they want it to happen. And so what do you do? When things aren't going the way that you want them to go in your marriage, with your kids, at school, in your business, with work, with your finances, when life just doesn't work out the way that you hoped life would work out, then what do you do? And what we see through this passage is Peter shows us we have two potential responses, two options. One is we can resist God. The other one is we can get on board with what God's doing. And we'll talk about first, the first one that he shows us in the passage is that we can resist God. That's an option for us. That's something that we can do. And Peter's saying to these people implicitly when he says in verse 17, who was I that I would oppose God? He's saying to these Jewish believers, that's what you're doing. When you're opposing me and I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do, you're essentially, you're opposing God. When they criticize back up in verses 2 and verse 3 and they're criticizing him for doing the very things that God directed him to do, he says, you're resisting God. You're fighting against what he wants done. That's what many of us do. We don't oftentimes, you know, shake our fists. Some of us do. Sometimes we turn our back on them. We'll just say, I'm going to do my thing. You forgive me when it's all done. Some people, they'll just keep pursuing it, and they'll make it religious. They'll package it in religious language and try to convince God, essentially, that, God, my plan is the best plan. If you would just get on board, we'd be great. Oftentimes we do it different ways. Negotiate with them, tell them he's wrong, all, all kinds of stuff. And unfortunately... Unlike the guy at the carnival who spent his life savings, what some people will do is they'll spend their whole lives pursuing something God didn't have for them, and they waste their, not life savings, their life. We're resisting God. You see, with our kids, those of you who are parents see this probably periodically, especially if you have kids about my kid's age, and every once in a while, they'll have a thing where they'll just throw a tantrum, they'll have a meltdown. You know, some, some scenario will be going on. They'll want dessert for like the second time of the day or whatever. Say, no, you're not going to have another dessert. Or they'll want extra gummy bears on their ice cream. So they put gummy bears on their ice cream now, which is weird to me. But they, they do. And they like gummy bears. I don't even like gummy bears. And so I, I think it's a bad decision all around. But they want extra ones. And if I want to make my kids happy, I would give them extra gummy bears if I thought it was a good idea. But sometimes that's not a good idea. Right, Uncle Dan? When you take them out to get ice cream... And you bring them back to my house, and they're telling me how big their ice cream was? That's sometimes a bad idea. Got that out. It's family stuff. All right. I just saw them there. I had to say, it happened this week. My daughter came home. She said, I had ice cream. And I'm like, it's bedtime. That's right. <laughs> but when you tell them sometimes no, you know what happens when you tell them no? Meltdown. 
Like, I don't even know where it came from. They're like frothing at the mouth, on the floor, kicking their legs, screaming their head off, hairs flying. It's just bad news. And when that happens, I look at them and think, where'd you learn that? I don't do that. I know you spend a lot of time with your mom. I'm very confident she does not do that. Maybe I did it once, okay? One time when my team was, they were a bad call, so it was, it was justified. But most of the time, I don't do that. Why are you doing this? You're doing it because you want what you want, when you want it, and you see me as the obstacle stopping you from getting what you want. That's how some of us respond to God. We want what we want, when we want it, and we want it now. And even when God says, wait, we get upset. And so we push forward. We try to make our thing happen. We resist. And sometimes we don't throw tantrums and get mad at them and shake our fists. But, but how about this when I tell my kids, hey, go, go make your bed. Well, you know, I'm going to sleep in it again. They start to negotiate with me uh, through the process. Do you ever negotiate with God? And start to convince and, hey, you need to eat your vegetables. I ate vegetables two weeks ago. I don't need whatever the thing. You start talking, start talking through, like, how you know more than I know. Well, here's the deal. The reason why we do this as parents, and those of you who are parents, you know, it's because you know more than your kids know. You know how they're going to respond and how they're going to feel the next day, and you know what's going to do to bedtime if they eat too much sugar. Wouldn't you love to just give them all kinds of candy? Wouldn't it be awesome? It'd be so fun. They'd be so happy with you. It'd be great. But you know more than they do. You know why they need the discipline of making their bed. It's not just because you don't want to make their bed for them. You know why it's beneficial for them. You know stuff they don't know. You don't think that God knows stuff we don't know? He's not some mean ogre up in heaven that just doesn't want you to have things that will make you happy. In fact, Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 Jesus ends up telling us that our Heavenly Father knows how to give gifts better than we do. And you think about it as parents, how much we'd love to give our kids gifts. If you love your kids, you, you want to bless their socks off. You want to love them that way. And he gives us some analogies. He says, uh, if you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your Heavenly Father know how to give those gifts? And he starts off and he says, if your child asks for bread, just wants a meal, you don't give him a rock. It's like a cruel joke. Uh, next analogy he gives, he says, and if he wants a fish, you know, food to eat that would be beneficial, you don't give him a snake. Some junior high boys are like, ooh, the snake would be a cool, cool gift. But the passage is saying, you're not going to give him something that's going to hurt him. You're going to give him something that's beneficial to him. And then he goes on and he gives us the teaching in verse 11. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Awesome verse. Doesn't that mean that God will give us everything we ask him for? Doesn't that mean that God will give him us everything we want? Uh-uh. But doesn't it mean that everything he gives us then is a good gift? Even when it's stuff that we don't want? Even when it's different than our desires? And that's what he's doing here in this passage. But these guys, they don't like it. Because it's not what they want. Go back up to verse 1 with me. There's an incredible verse here. It's so amazing that the, the Gentiles have come into the kingdom and all the apostles they hear about it and the brothers they hear about it all throughout Judea. The Gentiles that received the word of God that's a way in scripture of saying that they placed their faith in Christ. They stopped trusting in a, a hopeful desire that one day everything's going to work out. They stopped trusting in that they would become good enough. They stopped trusting in the idea that if I'm just sincere, God will understand and hopefully it just all kind of happens at the end. And they realized what Peter said back in verse 43. All the prophets testified about Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that's it. And that's the only way. Jesus Christ, you shift your trust from whatever it is you were trusting in into him. Otherwise, you've got no chance because it's based on his work and what he did. Otherwise, you're toast. And they realized that. And as they heard those words, they placed their faith in Jesus. Revival breaks out. The Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. And they hear this news. And then read verse 2. It's kind of shocking. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, 
the Christians, circumcised believers, criticized him. Why? How could they? What's even more shocking is verse 3, what they criticized him for. Look at verse 3, and don't miss this. And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. (laughs) So wait a minute. They're not criticizing Peter because he preached the gospel to them. They're not criticizing Peter because he baptized Gentiles. They're not criticizing Peter because the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles. They're not criticizing Peter because Gentiles had come into the kingdom. That's the big stuff. Notice what they're focused on. You went into that guy's house and you ate with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you not see? You see what happens oftentimes when we're resisting God is we become critical and we tend to major on the minors and miss the big picture of what God's doing. We major on the minors, and you know what the minors oftentimes are? It's our desires and what we want and things being done our way. And we miss what God's actually at work doing. And that's what we see people doing here. We see it in the New Testament when people come to Jesus. You know what they criticize them about? You ate with sinners and tax collectors. And you know what they focus on? The outward stuff. They miss the inward work. And you know what they do? You know, they clean up the cup, but on the inside it's a mess, is what Jesus says. You're like whitewashed tombs. The tomb looks beautiful. It's a dead body inside. You praise me with your lips, your heart's far from me. And we get these rules that we come up with that are our things that we think are so important and it's our way and what we want. And it's not just legalism, by the way. It's anytime it's the thing that we want. And why, God, aren't you doing my thing? And here's how I want it to happen. And we make up these rules taught by men and we live according to our desires rather than according to what God actually says in the scriptures. And we major on the minors and we miss what God's actually doing. What happens here in this passage is it'd be equivalent to if I told you, you know, last night, for instance, example, I uh, felt led by the Spirit to go to go to the bar and sit at the bar, maybe Applebee's across the street, neighborhood bar and grill right here, and, and just hang out and talk with some people. And then as I was sitting there, I was talking with some people, and this guy comes in, and he's a pimp, he's a drug dealer, he, he um, kidnaps children and sells them into slavery, and we start talking, and he just opens up to me, I tell him, I'm a pastor, I tell him about how God transformed my life, and I tell him, like, verse 43, it says, everyone, anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins. And the guy places his faith in Jesus Christ and gets baptized right there. And we take him behind the bar. We baptize him in the ice bin that's there, you know. Gets saved. And, and then I come in here and I share that story with you as a church. And then out in the lobby, somebody comes up to me and says, did you say you were at the bar? I go, yeah. And this pimp came up and he, came, he starts telling me these stories. Crazy. So I didn't tell the church all the stories. Let me tell you the stories. And then he got saved. But you were sitting at the bar? Yeah. But did you hear about the guy? But, but you were at a bar. And it's like, well, you're missing it, man. Do you not see what happened here? And they're going here. You went in and you ate at his house? Like, all these Gentiles are getting saved. The Spirit's coming. The church is growing. Did you go into that guy's house? Notice they don't ask a question here, though. They make a statement. You went in. It's an accusing statement. It was Gentile's house, uncircumcised man's house, and you ate with him. Implied, you better explain yourself, Peter. Now, to be fair to the Jews, remember we talked about the last couple weeks how much Jews hate Gentiles. I showed you some customs last week about how if you were a Jew and you walked through Gentile country and you got dirt on your sandals, you had to clean your sandals off before you come into Israel. That's how much they hated them. If you bought cooking utensils from a Gentile before you could make your meal with them, you had to sterilize those cooking utensils as they treated the Gentiles like the Gentiles had cooties or something. They hated these people. Certainly you didn't go into their house and certainly you wouldn't eat a meal with them, would you? 
you know what the real issue is here? The Jews are uncomfortable with this because these people aren't becoming like them first. I've read several commentators that said that you can be converted to Judaism. You weren't just born a Jew, by the way. You could become a Jew if you decided you were going to obey the law. You said you were going to abstain from certain foods. You got baptized. And if you were a male, you experienced the big C. Just circumcision, by the way. There were many men, by the way, and about half of you can understand this, about many men that would become God-fearers. They'd do everything but become circumcised because as an adult male, they didn't want to do that. In fact, some of these Gentiles, that's what they were. Believe the same thing as the Jews. Maybe they were even abstaining from those foods and doing all that kind of stuff. They just hadn't been circumcised, and the Jews are uncomfortable with this because you're not like us. And that's how some of us act with people. Before they become Christians, we expect them to clean up their act. Start acting like a Christian. Before you, you don't have the spirit to do that. You don't even know these things are expected of you, but we want you to act like that. Don't, don't swear around me. I'm a Christian. You know, I know you're not, but you behave according to my stuff. And, you just had a couple too many today. And I just gotta, what do you expect? You know what we expect? And then they become Christians. You know, sometimes we expect that they automatically adopt Christian culture. That all of a sudden, they're going to be you know, big Toby Mac fans. Uh, they're going to have left behind sitting on the dashboard of their car. Uh, they're going to be driving around you know, with whatever kind of bracelets or the popular Christian bracelets at the time, witness wear t-shirts. Rather than an Adidas t-shirt, they're going to be wearing a He Did It t-shirt. And they're going to have all that. That's kind of what we expect. You become a Christian, God supernaturally makes you like organ music, apparently. Or bluegrass, or whatever it is that's the, the music type that you like. Is that really true, or is that just us imposing what we want to be true upon people? I've got a friend um, who goes to our church. He was comfortable with me sharing some of this stuff, but he recently became a Christian. Um, started attending church in Easter. the first time he'd gone to church, and just after Easter, I trusted Christ as a Savior. And uh, we were having breakfast and just talking about what God's doing in his life. And I'll tell you what I don't tell him. I don't tell him, stop doing this, start doing this. I don't talk to him about his behavior. Do you know why? One, I'd probably mess him up. But two, because then I'd rob myself of the joy of watching the Spirit work in his life. You know, the guy reads his Bible every morning, every night, because he wants to. He's telling other people about Jesus Christ, because he wants to. God's changing his life. He is changing some of his behaviors. He's changing the way he views the entire world. He's getting prompted to call up a friend from the past the other day, and I tell him, hey, you know, call these people if they ever had this kind of conversation. The Spirit of God's working in his life. The Spirit of God was working in this passage. It just didn't look the way the Jews wanted it to look. And so they were uncomfortable. You know what Peter tells him? He starts to explain himself, which there's a note to be taken there when you get criticized. He also cares about the people that are criticizing him. And say, oh, God's doing something. You don't like it. You figure it all out. He starts to explain himself. Verse 4. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. Verses 5 through 7, he talks about this vision that he has. Then verse 8, he says, I was uncomfortable too. I replied, when God told me to start doing this, I said, no, there's, you, you can't mean this. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up with what I think to be true about you. And, and I said, I couldn't. And then God continued to show himself and continued to show that he was the one that was at work. And it was uncomfortable, which that's not new for Peter, is it? Every step of faith he's taken in his life's been uncomfortable. Hey, come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Drop your nets. The nets, that's my job. That's security. That's what I know. That is comfort. And what are you going to do? I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That sounds weird. What is that? He's going to change his whole mission for his life and the reason why he's here on earth. And Peter, step out of the boat. Uh, people don't walk on water, Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to stay over here where it's safe and comfortable and secure with my friends who I know who are crying like little girls. No, come. Come to me. And he steps out by faith. 
And here again, no, surely you wouldn't want me to do this, Lord. No, I do. But it's uncomfortable. You know, that's the thing about living by faith. It is uncomfortable. It's a good check for some of us that think we live by faith, but the reality is we try to create a whole bunch of cushion around our lives so we never have to do anything that's uncomfortable for God. We wouldn't say we're isolating ourselves from faith. Say we're being wise. Say we're planning. And the reality is we value comfort over following Christ. And the problem is that God says without faith it's impossible to please him. And so I challenge you to ask yourself this question today. What in your life is uncomfortable as a direct result of taking a step of faith? Is there anything in your life that's uncomfortable as a result of taking a step of faith? Financially, emotionally, relationally, physically, any, anything. And you look through the scriptures, and I, and I challenge you, you can email me this. If you can find a person in scripture who God called to walk by faith, and God said, you just keep doing what you're doing, and continue to build security around yourself, and continue to build comfort on yourself, so you never really have to trust me, and you can just kind of go with all the stuff you like. All the ways you want it. Real secure and real comfortable and real cushy. Because when I look at scripture, I see these people, whether it's Abraham, come follow me, go go where you don't even know where you're going to end up. Just step out and go to a new land and leave your idols and leave this land. And I'm going to birth a whole nation of people through you, even though you're infertile. So what does he have to do? He has to leave. He has to go camping, which I think is the essence of discomfort. But not only does he have to camp, the real issue is he's got to step into the unknown, which isn't that true of every step of faith. You don't know how it's going to happen. You don't know what's going to take place. You don't know what's next. That's part of the essence of why it is faith. Whether you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, or whether you're taking a step of faith to leave a job and go to a place, whether it's whatever it is that he's calling you to do, sharing Christ with your neighbor, that you don't know what's going to happen. And so it's faith. It requires trust. It requires faith in him. You see with Abraham, you see with Moses, Moses, leave a life of luxury and go and lead these people. And some of us look and like Moses is kind of cool hero guy, but think about it in Moses' perspective. He didn't want this job. And then he's going to have other people say to him, they're mad at him because he has the job and they want it. <laughs> if it was Moses' call, he'd be like, take it. But he knows that God's called him to this place to lead people that are going to complain to him through the wilderness for 40 years. That doesn't sound like a very fun job. It doesn't sound very comfortable to me. You look at Noah, build a boat. Everybody thinks you're a nut. Build a boat. Step out by faith. It's not comfortable. You talk about Peter. Peter steps out of the boat. Peter follows him. You look at these different people through Scripture. Here's one. We had a marriage deal on Friday night, right? We talk about marriage. Here's a story you don't hear a lot about when you go to marriage conferences. How about Hosea and Gomer? And if you don't know that story, God tells Hosea, his prophet, to marry a woman who is a prostitute and will continue to be one after they get married. And she will sell herself, and and I want you to go buy her back. And then she's going to go do it again. And you, even though she's yours, you pay for her to bring her back because I want you to know how I feel loving my people. Now, if a friend of yours came to you and said, God's telling me to marry a prostitute, what'd you say? No, God would never tell someone to do that. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. And that's how we usually live our lives. But God says this stuff all through Scripture. You know what's really comfortable? is the way we manage religion with our rules and the way we want it to be because that's something that we can manage. You know what we can't manage? Be holy as I'm holy. Instead, what we make holiness into is don't go to the bar, don't smoke, don't drink, don't whatever things that fill in the blank for you, and make sure you do these things. And a lot of us think we're good Christians because we're here. Well, how does holiness even rank on your radar scale? Because you know what real holiness is? It means you're like God. It doesn't mean you're weird. It means that you're like God. That means you hate sin and you love him and you love people more than anything else. That's, that's what holiness is. 
How about this? Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Die to yourself. See, that stuff's all uncomfortable. So we would prefer to be moral, certain political parties, dress a certain way, only say certain words, don't say others. That's manageable. See, living by faith is tough and it's uncomfortable. And think about any time in your life you've been called to take a step of faith that has been comfortable. Think about when we came to plant this church. My wife and I lived in a city we loved. We were involved in a ministry, had a job, had friends. And then God calls us to do something different. That's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable physically. It was uncomfortable emotionally. It was uncomfortable spiritually. It was uncomfortable financially. It was uncomfortable in like every way. If God says to do it, are you going to say no? Think about my friend. I went to listen to at Celebrate Recovery this past Thursday night. John Cullen, our executive pastor, was sharing his story. Talking about his hurts, habits, hang-ups, and lots of pain in his life and different bad stuff that he was involved in. He talked about how he was mad at God. Like so mad at God, literally in his basement, shaking his fist at God. And you wouldn't know that, like seeing him. I remember we knew each other in junior high before either one of us knew Jesus. He's a good student, played sports, a popular guy. And you just think he kind of had it together. But he was mad, mad at the world, mad at the circumstances, and mad at God. And he talked about how one day God melted his heart while he was in the basement of his house. Overwhelmed him with his love. And he said, I love you so much, you are my child. And I love you, and I love you so much that I died for you, even in the stupid stuff that you're doing. I died for that so that we could have a relationship. And he rescued him out of that life. He's healing those hurts and dealing with that stuff that he struggles with. And then he talked about how God, after he had saved him, sort of discipled him through college, ended up going and working at a, um, or being part of a church and being a deacon at a church and doing a bunch of stuff, kind of God stuff, got real busy at the church. And you know, he said what happened? Is that one day his neighbor died and he didn't know his neighbor's name. That's uncomfortable. Especially when you know that God strategically placed you in that neighborhood for a reason and you don't even know the guy next door. Not even know his name and he died. And somebody asked him the question afterwards. He was done sharing a story. He let us do some Q&A. He said, how did you end up here in North Carolina? And the answer was he wanted to be a part of a church that wanted to impact a city. He wanted to impact a community. He wanted to be about more than just gathering people together and doing Christian stuff. He wanted to take the scripture seriously. And since John and I knew each other, since before either one of us were Christians, he knew what was happening down here at Southbridge. And so he decided he was going to pack up his family and leave to come and move here to North Carolina without having a job. And we didn't have a job to offer him. We didn't offer him a job. We didn't have a job to offer him at the time. And uh, he just decided he was going to come down here. He was an analytical scientist when he was back in Michigan. And he didn't have a job with a drug company. And do you think that was comfortable? If you wonder, ask his wife, who was pregnant with their second child at the time. You can ask her if you think that was comfortable. He did not share with Celebrate Recovery, but I will share with you that what also happened was some people, guess who, Christians, told him, God would never want you to do something like that. Do you know what I, I think when I hear him tell the story? Did they read the Bible? Like, like did, did you, have you seen Abraham or, I don't know, pick another guy. Pick any guy. Read Hebrews 11. Pick any of those guys. Pick somebody. J- Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew. Pick guys you never even heard of. Any guy that you find in Scripture that's walking by faith, did they not get called to do that kind of thing? But it's uncomfortable. We don't like it. And so what does Peter do with these people? They're uncomfortable with what God's doing. And Peter says, I was uncomfortable too, but you know what God did? God's changing people's lives. That's what he ends up telling through this vision. Cornelius, this whole house, all these Gentiles, the Holy Spirit comes on them just as they came on you. And he talks about changed lives. And that's something we talk about all the time here at this church. I'm talking about it at staff meeting. Every staff meeting, um, we do different stuff, but it's consistent that we always say, how's God worked in the last week? Because we value 
life change, and so we want to celebrate the things that we value, and, and we're talking about it at staff meeting. A lot of times we'll talk about things that you'll tell us today, even how God's working in your life, what he did today, what he's done throughout the week, and some of your groups, and all those different types of things. And, and this week, um, Pastor Jason ended up sharing with us something that happened with his own family. Uh, his wife, Amanda, had gone to the park, and you know how kids are when they start playing with other kids. They just don't, they don't have any strangers, right? They just don't mean anybody. The social inhibitions are not there. And they start talking, and so Mia, his oldest daughter, is nine years old, meets this little girl, and they start talking. And she says, do you believe in God? And the little girl says, no, my parents don't believe in God, and we don't believe in God. And so then Mia proceeds with the conversation and says, do you know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you? <laughs> awesome, right? Isn't that cool? And then uh, and the little girl, you know, she didn't know that story, and Mia, you know, asking, is it okay for, asking mommy, is it okay for me to share this? And she says, yeah. And then, you know, the mom comes over, which, you know, what's she going to say? And they start talking, Amanda, the mom. Well, Mia ends up telling this little girl how Jesus died for her sins so that she could have a relationship with God if she'd trust Jesus Christ to be her Lord and her Savior. And the little girl's interested in it. She says, you have to pray this prayer, you know, place your faith in Jesus. And normally, Mia says, that you'd pray this with your parents, but since your parents don't believe in God, you can pray this on your own. And so the girl says, all right, tonight I'm going to pray that on my own. And then Mia comes back to her mommy and says, uh, Mommy, do you remember 10X from church? And, and she says, yeah. And she says, uh, that was one of my ones. You know, that was one of the ones people that I'm praying for. And some of you might remember 10X. And what we were talking about there is that each one of us would be strategic about 10 people in our lives over the next 10 years. You know, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that because it requires faith. It requires you to step out of your faith relationally. You know, Mia did something that oftentimes as parents we'd be uncomfortable with. And here she is with this childlike faith. Some of us were uncomfortable with different things. We'd go through that. Remember we were talking about building a, a building? And 10x, and some people became financially uncomfortable because they believed that the Lord laid on their hearts a number that they didn't know how that number was going to come. They didn't know when that was going to take place, and so they stepped by faith financially into that. And some people, uh, un- uncomfortable relationally. I remember it made me uncomfortable relationally. I can be candid with you. I remember I, I kind of have the uh, advantage that oftentimes before I say things, I know what I'm going to say. Sometimes that happens. And, uh, and I knew that I was going to challenge our church body to pray for one person a year. And so oftentimes, we don't, you don't hear us always say 10x, we just say, who's your one? And pray for one person a year for the next 10 years. You're trying to impact for Jesus Christ. And, and I thought I knew who my one was. It was a guy I'd already shared the gospel with. We'd already sat down, had breakfast. We're talking through things. He believed he was a false religion. He believed a lot of his good works were key. But Jesus existed. And so we're talking through some of that stuff. And I thought, it'd be awesome if, if this guy would come into the kingdom. He'll probably be my one. When I went to pray about it, though, God laid somebody else on my heart. So then I obviously responded and said, all right, we'll keep praying about this, God. And uh, we'll see. Because the guy that you laid on my heart, I want him to trust Christ. I hope that he becomes a Christian. I will pray for him. I will tell him. But I don't really like him. Is it okay to say as a pastor? I don't dislike him. I don't want to hurt the guy or anything, but I don't want to hang out with the guy. And so I said, God, we'll just keep praying about this. You know, hopefully you'll change your mind. Here's, here's the deal. God didn't change his mind, okay? And kept laying this guy on my heart. And so I said, all right, he'll be, at first I was like, he'll be number nine. But I'm like, all right, he'll be my one. I'll pray for this guy. The other guy kind of cut me off, too. We don't even talk anymore. The, the guy had the false religion, so you can pray for him. But this guy, God lays on my heart, so I start praying for him. I'm praying for him regularly. I'm looking for opportunities to share the gospel with him and all those types of things. The other day, I was driving home from work, and I was thinking about this and uh, thinking about him. And I, it was kind of like, and I didn't say this, but it was almost like, well, I wish you'd get him saved so we can move on to the next guy. Like, you just kind of check him out. Like, it was, I'll do the right thing. My heart wasn't in it, though. But I was like, I'll, I'll do the right thing. I was like God laid on my heart. I got a work to do in you, Scott. It's not just his salvation. That's a big deal, obviously, but it's not. I want you to love him. I don't want you just to tell him information and check it off like it's some objective on your, your list here. I want you to actually care for him because he's my child, and, and I died for him. 
and he doesn't even know me. And so I want him to know me, and I want you to see him how I see him, and I want you to care about his life and his marriage and his work and his family, and I want you not just to say, hey, on Thursdays you're going to spend a little time with him because that makes it look like you care for him, but I want you to genuinely just care for him. And so you will spend time with him intentionally, and you will share with him, but you'll share with him out of a love, not out of obligation. And so that's uncomfortable for me. And I'm still in a work in progress. I know this information, by the way. My heart hasn't quite caught up. So you can pray for me. But what in your life is uncomfortable as a result of walking by faith? Is there anything in your life that's uncomfortable relationally, financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in any way because you're walking by faith? If not, that should be alarming. It's impossible to please God without faith. And maybe you're resisting, which is what these people were doing, these Christians were doing in this passage. But then there's another option, not just to resist. There's an option to get on board to get on board with what God's doing. Because God's going to do what God wants to do. The question is whether you're on board with it or not. And what Peter does in this passage, he starts saying, that's essentially it. I resisted at first. Surely, God, you wouldn't ask me to do this. But then God said it again. And God was clear, and he's not confusing. And he says it again. And then he does it in another way, through circumstances. He brings these people, and he prompts them by the Spirit. And then he shows that he's been working in this other guy's life, and God's been at work, placing. And it's not about Cornelius. It's not about Peter. It's all about God. And God was working. And God worked through his prophets, and God worked through Jesus, and God worked through the Spirit, and God worked in changing this guy's life. And it was God, 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 God. And then you get to verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, first person is important here, to think that I could oppose God? What a great question. We should all be asking ourselves this question. Who am I in light of you? If God was at work and God was doing these things through God's prophets and through God's man and through God's visions and through God's word, you see him quote Acts 1-5 here, he's doing all this stuff and it's all God. Who am I to oppose him? But oftentimes we're so arrogant, especially when we get something in our focus that we want. And we want something. What about when you want something and you want it when you want it, and there's only one obstacle, and it's God. That's a big obstacle. And what oftentimes we'll still do is we'll still go after it. Sometimes it's noble stuff. Sometimes it's sinful stuff. Sometimes it's noble stuff, and we make it sinful by continuing to pursue after it when God's saying no. I heard a story this week about a woman who um, got pregnant, had a baby, and then the baby died right after uh, the birth. And she was a nurse, and so what she ended up doing is she went to a pediatric doctor's office, and when another mother came out of the building with her three-day-old baby, she shot the mom and took the baby. Noble to want a child. There's nothing wrong with wanting a child. However, when she keeps going after it, when God's done something different, that's a problem. Sometimes you see men, they'll be willing to forfeit their future. They'll be willing to forfeit their family, they'll forfeit their reputation, perhaps even lose their job for a few moments of pleasure with a woman they barely know. Who would do that in their right mind? Well, it happens all the time. Because when we want what we want, we don't even think straight. And what Peter's doing here is he's giving us some straight thinking. He's saying, who am I that I would oppose God? Because the mistake we oftentimes make is we make God like he's like our peer of some sort. Like he's on the same level of thinking with us or same level of being with us, the same level of the circumstances that are happening here. And he's different than us. And oftentimes what we'll do is you have, sometimes skeptics will say, oh, God, just answer this question. You think you have a question God hasn't thought of? 
Like you think in your lifetime, however old you are, 25, 95, wherever you're at in that spectrum, you think that you have a question that's stumping him? No, your question's stumping you, not him. You think that maybe you have a circumstance in your life that God hasn't thought through every other gazillion possible scenarios that could have happened in your life and then decide this was the best one for right now? See, his thoughts and our thoughts, they're not the same. They're not even on the same plane. Isaiah the prophet talks about this, and he says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, different stratosphere, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are different than your thoughts. And we start to question him sometimes, and we'll ask questions, especially when life doesn't go our way. And Job, the book of Job, life's not going the way that Job would desire. That's an understatement. Job chapter 38, Job's asking questions. You know what God says? Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? You don't even know what you're talking about. And he says, brace yourself like a man, because that's all you are. You are creation, and I am the creator. And he starts to get sarcastic with him. Do you know what he says? I will question you, and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Apparently you speak like you know, like a creator, so let's talk about this. Tell me if you understand. And then he goes on and he starts talking about where were you when I told the lightning to stay here and the snow to stay here, and where were you when I placed the clouds and the stars in the sky and I told the ocean to stop here? Where were you at that time? In other words, you're different than me. Let's remember that. See, we are so arrogant. Peter's asking this question. What a great question. Who am I to oppose God? Because here's the deal. You can't. He wins every time. In fact, the book of Acts is actually, as far as uh, literature is concerned, is a book of opposition. The whole book is opposition after opposition after opposition. Do you know how the book ends? The last word in the book is a Greek word in the Greek manuscript. The last word is, and the gospel went forth unhindered. But read the book. Uh, Acts chapter 2, the church starts. Acts chapter 3, God starts moving. Acts chapter 4, persecution comes. Persecution from religious leaders, by the way, and it doesn't stop God. Acts chapter 5, what ends up happening in Acts chapter 5 is sin from within the church. Satan starts to attack the church from within with hypocrisy. doesn't stop God. Acts chapter 6, what do you see? Well, you get to chapter 8, you got these social barriers and all kinds of stuff starting to happen, dynamics in the church that would stop the gospel going forth, doesn't stop the gospel. Acts chapter 7, 8, 9, Gentiles are going to come to church. Yeah, but that's not supposed to happen. The church itself is trying to stop this from happening. And God's saying, you can't stop me. Acts chapter 9, you got a guy who's killing Christians. And God uses that to further his kingdom. You can't stop him. You continue to read on from where we're going to go from here. The government starts to oppose him. And you eventually get to the story where Paul's at the end and Paul's about to be killed. He's standing before a king, the most powerful man in the world. And then it says the gospel goes forth unhindered. It doesn't matter if you kill Paul. It doesn't matter if you destroy all the buildings. It doesn't matter if you start persecution. It doesn't matter if there's hypocrisy within the church. I'm going to accomplish my plan is what God's saying. And you can decide to be a part of it. You can resist. But I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to do it. You see, we're talking about a God that they tried to kill. And he rose from the dead. They nailed him to a cross. The cross couldn't hold him. They put him in a grave. The grave couldn't contain him. And here he is. And you're going to fight against him? Because you don't like, they didn't give you the job you wanted? You, you, you don't think this is how your marriage is supposed to be? You, you think you should have a different health condition? And what some of us will do is then we will waste, not our life savings, our lives pursuing what we want. And so what do we do? Say, say, even some of you might be sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, I want to get on board then. I want to do what he wants. How do I do that? Well, the only way it happens is through the Spirit, which is what we're talking about through this whole passage. This passage of the Spirit came on the Gentiles, and the Spirit's the one that does the work in the Jews, so they can say this in verse 18. When they heard this, the same people who were opposing God, they had no further objections, no more resistance. And they praised God, saying, so then, you're not doing what I want, but I want to be a part of what you're doing. God granted even to the Gentiles, repentance unto life. 
You get on board with what God's doing. And what he's doing is he's working with the Spirit. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you have the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the Spirit is in you. Stop resisting the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Oh, the Spirit makes us love people we don't naturally love. The Spirit gives us the joy that we're desiring to get by manipulating our circumstances so everything's under control and we're secure and we're comfortable. But it's the Spirit that gives us real joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and self-control that we're not going after those sins. Those who live by the Spirit deny the, the desires of the sinful nature. It's the Spirit that's at work. So how do you, how do you not resist the Spirit? Well, you surrender your life. Say, you know what I want? I want holiness. I want to love my enemy. I want to turn the other cheek. I want what you want, God, because I want you. You see, why does God make it so uncomfortable for us to step out by faith? Is it because God's a God of discomfort? In fact, the scriptures would contra- contra- contradict that. The Spirit is called a comforter. God says, in your afflictions, I want to comfort you so you can be comforted, so you can comfort others. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's all about comfort, and God is a God of comfort. Do you know what he doesn't want? He doesn't want us getting our comfort from our stuff and our job or our spouse or our kids or our health or our achievements or any other idol that we put in the primary place in our life. He wants our comfort to come from him. He's the God of comfort, so he makes it uncomfortable. And what he's doing is he's poking around in your heart at that other stuff so you ultimately desire him. See, he's going to do what he wants to do. The question is, will you be on board or not? You can resist, you can get on board. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, not our will, but your will be done. Please. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you, and I hope that you will have a week where you live by faith and maybe even take a new step of faith. We'll see you.